welcome back to another episode of East Got Game, an unofficial podcast about the FBL1 East competition for 2023. My name's Jacinta from the Central Coast Crusaders, and with me, partially wearing his Comets hat, but always wearing his Sutherland Sharks scarf or jersey or beanie, it's Lockie France. How are you, Lockie? I am great, Squin. How are you? I am uh, mentally and cognitively and socially a little bit worn out from the Asia Cup from the weekend, if I'm being honest with you. Otherwise, fine. I'm just being a big old sook. I mean, you, you, you had a big game on Saturday. We did have a big game on Saturday. You had a big game on Saturday too. You had I our pickup. Yes. It was a lot of fun. It was lots of fun. Just for context, uh, the other podcast I co-host is called Shooting the Breeze, which is a podcast about women's basketball and women in basketball. And it was our third birthday this year. So we decided to host a pickup game for all of our loyal listeners um, and we held the pickup game in collaboration with a group called First Subs, who is a women's only pickup collective uh, you can find in Minchinberry and in Concord. Um, if that sounds like something you're interested in, find First Subs on Instagram and uh, hashtag CourtsideCaz will be able to look after you there. But it was uh, it was really, really fun, Lockie. I'm really glad that you could come. Yeah, I, thanks for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Good to play some full court basketball for the first time in I don't know how long. Yeah, I'm definitely uh, feeling it today. I know that our friend Sammy Mack, the assistant coach of the Aubrey Wudonga women's team, uh, was also feeling it afterward because he had to scoot to a game, as did yourself. After that pickup game, you had, to, you, had you were on call for NBL One duties this weekend. Yeah, yeah. I actually saw Sammy on Sunday as well at Comets Aubrey Wodonga. He was moving a bit better, getting some shots up pre-game. He must have come up all right in the end. Yeah, he must have. I don't know if they travel with a physio, but if they do, maybe he made the most of it. Weekend of NBL One East, more big numbers. Despite it being round 15 out of 18, people are still racking up really big numbers. Either that or everyone's getting fatigued and just don't want to play defense. I'm not too sure. But um, you were covering the women's weeks uh, games this week, Lockie. How about you start us off by taking us through the results? I certainly can do that. A big 13-game week for the women this week. And it all started on Thursday night with Comets travelling down to Centre of Excellence. And it was COE getting the 87-77 victory. Of course, Comets without Shyla Heal, who was at Asia Cup. Then on Saturday, it all started off with Manly sneaking home against Canberra, 75-69, Manly doing that without Alex Delaney. Norse got over the Albury-Wodonga Bandits with a 70-57 win. Illawarra knocked off Bankstown, 84-74, in a bit of an upset, which uh, really hurts Bankstown's slim finals chances. Meanwhile, Maitland almost cementing their final spot, taking advantage of a severely understrength Sutherland in an 81-68 victory. Of course, Lauren Nicholson at the Asia Cup as well for Sutherland, but other players out for the Sharks as well. There, Central Coast picked up a 73-47 win on the road at Hills. Inner West with some monster performances from their big names, picking up a 104-56 win over the Hornsby Karingai Spiders. And on Saturday night, it was Comets in a valiant effort, missing both Panousis and Heal going down 50-71 to the travelling Newcastle Falcons. Moving to Sunday, 
Manly got over the line on the road at Maitland, 69-58. Newcastle picked up a crucial 77-74 win in a nail-biter against North. Illawarra continued their excellent weekend, picking up a 70-58 win over Penrith Panthers. Albury-Wodonga almost let Comets get away from them in the fourth quarter, but managed to recover for an 81-79 win against that Comets team, still missing Shiloh Hill and Vanessa Panousis. And rounding things out, the late game on Sunday saw the Sutherland Sharks pick up a 116-68 win over Hornsby-Karingai as Jordan Dewhurst picked up a triple-double, one of two triple-doubles in the women's comp this weekend. So turning to the ladder... There were only 40-odd games left, and we played about a third of them in this weekend alone. So Manly still sitting pretty there at 17-2. and Newcastle have now gapped North a bit, sitting at 16-2, and whilst North are in third at 14-4. and Centre of Excellence have now played all 22 of their games, sitting at 16-6. and Sutherland, 13-6 and in fifth, and then Comets and Maitland, both 11-7. and Comets sitting ahead there uh, on percentage, and I believe they would also have the split there. Albury Wodonga, 10 and 8 in eighth, and then Canberra Nationals, 8 and 10, and Bankstown, 7 and 10. Just try both those teams just trying to cling on to Albury Wodonga's coattails, and of course, Albury and Canberra still have to face off one more time this season. Still plenty to play for, but it looks like it's going to take. At least 16. It's going to take 16 wins to get your top four spot, considering who Norse have left to play. So at this point, Sutherland will be hoping to win out and maybe get a split on someone. But for everyone else, it looks like curtains for the top four spot and they're just looking for the best spot from fifth to eighth that they can manage. Next round, that Albury-Wodonga-Sutherland Sharks game is going to be really important. That game, if Sutherland win out... They have the split over COE, so they would jump COE for fourth spot. But if they lose any game from here on out, it's pretty much it, it is curtains for their uh, top four hopes. Because I think Norse do have a fairly uh, fairly favourable run home. They play a few teams down the bottom of the ladder, so you'd probably be expecting them to finish on at least sixteen or seventeen wins. Really great effort though from. North uh, being able to compensate for their loss there with not having M. Simons, only losing to Newcastle by a little bit. But I think Newcastle, nonetheless, would have been very happy with that win. Certainly. And uh, it's worth remembering that Newcastle are one of, uh, one of the very few teams this season to have the split over Manly. They only play each other once and Newcastle got the win on that game. So if they win out they will finish top because they'll be at worst tied with Manly and own the season split. Oh, that's a really good point. I actually didn't account for that. Neither had I until uh, Coach Marty McLean brought it up when I was talking to him before the game. But that finishes the women's routine. Now let's bring on the men, as Waylon Smithers would say, in the uh, when he was commentating gymnastics. Oh, my gosh, that is such a great reference. Uh, a character that uh, isn't celebrated enough, in my opinion, Waylon Smithers. 100%. Um, all right, so right on cue, I shall do just that. Uh, it was Sydney Comets hosting Newcastle Falcons uh, to start off the weekend. 
and Comets snatched the win 79 to 74. Manly Warringah played Canberra Gunners at home and lost 71 to 108. North Bears were 107. Aubrey Wodonga Bandits were 97, a 10 point deficit in a game that went into double overtime. Uh, something I'll point out with that game is that in the second period of overtime, Norths won 11 to 1. And uh, I think that's pretty reflective of what Angus was telling us a couple episodes back about how they train. You know, he, he copped a lot of a bit of flack for saying that he doesn't do any team shooting and he just focuses on running his team to the ground and it's paid off by winning a, a, sec, a, a second overtime period uh, by 10 points. Illawarra Hawks beat Bankstown Bruins at home 102 to 84. Maitland Mustangs beat Sutherland Sharks at home 110 to 79. Hills Hornets 73, Central Coast Crusaders 71 in the Hornets' nest. Another absolute heartbreaking two-point loss for the Crusaders. Now, if this doesn't cause any character building for that team, then I don't know what will. Uh. Um, <laughs> you know, West Bulls 84, Hornsby Karingai Spiders 59. Uh, Hornsby Karingai then backed up the next day and had a home game against Sutherland Sharks going down 76 to 92. Ma- uh, Maitland Mustangs had their second game of the week also at home and they played Manly Warringah Seagulls winning 102 to 79. Newcastle as well with their second game of the week but this time back home. They beat the Norse Bears 68 to 57. So also being the North second game, I imagine leaving everything on the floor in that double OT at home than having to travel and play Newcastle, you know, less than 24 hours later would have been really tough. Uh, Penrith Panthers hosted the Illawarra Hawks for their second game of the week, but it was Penrith's first. But they lost 68 to 94. And Comets with, also with their second game of the round, hosting Aubrey Wodonga at home going down a 74 to 86. So good redemption there for the Bandits coming away with that, uh, with one and one on an away weekend, which is good. And so as now we look at the ladder, uh, Centre of Excellence still uh, still on top, played all 20 games uh, in first position, 19 and one. Inner West Bulls still at second place uh, with 14 and three. Norse Bears at third place with eight, with 13 and 5. Sutherland Sharks at fourth place with 13 and 6. Maitland Mustangs just behind them now in fifth place with 12 and 6. Uh, Canberra Gunners in sixth place uh, with 12 and 6 as well. Between Maitland Mustangs and Canberra Gunners, both on 12 and 6. Yeah, so I think Maitland must have the split on them yeah. by now. They must have the split. That's right, because mm-hmm. the percentage is in actually Gunners' favour, but I think you're right. The Gunners must have the split over Maitland, so that makes sense. See, none of this would make sense if uh, I didn't have to, you to confer with Lockie. <laughs> uh, Hills Hornets at seventh place with 11 and 6, and the Newcastle round out the top eight with 11 and 7, and uh, only 0.1% separating them. Very exciting, very exciting stuff. It certainly is, and I think that win for Newcastle over Norse will have uh, broken the hearts of those uh, teams chasing, you know, Illawarra, Aubrey Wodonga, and Comets. You know, if Newcastle finished this weekend 10-8, and eight, everyone would feel they're right back in with a shot. But 
Newcastle just managing to uh, regroup after that loss on Saturday night and re-establishing a bit of a gap there. Yeah, I think so. And looking ahead to next round, some of the games that uh, to keep an eye on include the North Bears and Inner West Bulls. That's going to be a really important game. Canberra Gunners and Hills Hornets uh, at, at Belconnen. I think that one will be quite an important game as well, just for the Gunners to make sure they stay in the mix of that top six. And uh, all, also, again, Aubrey Wodonga Bandit, Sutherland Sharks and the men is going to be pretty important as well. Definitely for, for both teams. I mean, um, if Norse win their two remaining games against Inner West, it forces Inner West to five losses minimum. Although if Inner West pick up wins, then Norse fall right back into the pack with Sutherland especially, but also Maitland and Canberra and even Hills are in with a shot at getting right in there. So between you know second to six especially, or second to seventh even at the moment, a lot can happen. And I think it's just centre of excellence. They've got those two games right at the end of the season, but they already have the split over Inner West, so they're going to finish top. And I did see online that the centre of excellence men are actually away at another camp, I think. I think a bunch of them are away to NBA Global Camp, I think. This would have been the time that they would have set aside to go to their own 19s Men's World Cup. So I guess they've got to do something to fill the time, and if they can find another elite camp to go to, all the better. For those that don't know, the under-19 Australian men chose not to go to their qualifying tournament in Iran at the time uh, because there was some safety concerns. And by the Australian under-19 men, I think the emus, deciding not to go to that qualifying tournament meant that they obviously couldn't qualify for the World Cup at all, so that's why they're not there. But it looks like it was a very close grand final overnight between France and Spain, so I'm pretty keen to go and watch that at some stage on the Phoebe YouTube channel because um, when I got to do the under-19 men's, uh, I think it was under-19, no, under-17 men's World Cup last year, a future MBL1 next star in Alex Saar from France played. So sometimes those Junior Fever World Cups can be a great insight into the next big thing that you'll see in the MBL, WMBL, uh, NBA even. 100%, yeah, that's saying, especially with how global the game's getting, it's more and more likely that the uh, next NBA star is going to be from a team, you know, outside the USA and could be from, you know, any country really. Uh, now, I digress, certainly got off topic there, so apologies. But um, I'll let you get into some game reviews, Lockie, because you were taking care of the women's comp this time. I certainly was. Uh, picked a good weekend for it, 13 games. Uh, I think we'll... We'll get the uh, painful one for me out of the way first and uh, we'll go with the Maitland-Sutherland game because that is one of the ones I chose. And I I chose this game as a bit of a theme because uh, I chose games that gave us a look into what teams do when they're shorthanded. So Maitland, obviously, Mila Wojcovic is gone for the season. She's off to college. Sutherland, we're missing Lauren Nicholson for Asia Cup, but they only ran with seven and Emily Garland played Youth League, so she was also out. And the thing with Sutherland is, I'm not sure if this is the reason, but it would make sense, is they're actually right in the mix for a top two spot in Youth League women this season. They might send, you know, Garland or Geordie Dewhurst, depending on the makeup of each roster, to make sure they get a win in our Youth League if the team is playing, you know, at different venues. Which, with the... Weird youth league format this year. Any away game could be at a different venue to your NBL one team. 
because uh, it split after 14 rounds and went to a top eight, bottom seven format. But it finished 81-68 Maitland. So the Mustangs, again, taking full advantage of the opposition they face. They uh, picked up that win against Comets uh, a couple of weeks ago when they didn't have uh, Panousis. And they've done the same here, uh, led by Shakira Riley's 27 points and seven rebounds. Sid Hunter with a big double-double, 12 points, 12 rebounds, eight assists. And Maddie Washington, 15 points, nine rebounds, six assists, three steals and two blocks. So that's a bit of a stat line. The commentators mentioned it. I think everybody who tuned into the game knew it straight away that the big battle would be Shakira Riley versus Eliza Fabro. Both tenacious at both ends of the floor, not going to let their opponent get anything if they can avoid it. What Maitland did well was they were able to get Shaq out of that battle and get her some shots. Whether she's bringing the ball up court, she gets it back on the second touch, or just you know playing off the ball. It was just enough to give her some opportunities to um, get some scoring. And um, she actually had 16 points at halftime which was big because the first half was always going to be uh, big for Maitland because with just seven players for Sutherland, there was always the feeling that the sheer number of players that Maitland had, they would be able to you know, swap players in and out and they'd probably have the legs in the back end of the game. So to be up by three at half time was massive. Um, although having said that, um, Riley, Hunter and Washington all played in excess of 35 minutes. Williams played 30, 31. Hannah Fox came off. She only played, she started in place of Waskovich. She only played 16 and was seen with ice on her ankle. So um, Dale Walker stepped up and played 21 minutes. But I mean, the Sharks can only play 21 minutes of players off the bench. So uh, Eliza Farrow played all 40 minutes. Hovada 37, Maddie Norris 38, Liv White 32, Jordy Dewhurst, the best part of 30 as well. Of course, as I mentioned, those assist numbers from Maitland, Maddie Washington, Sid Hunter, combining for 14 assists. Just the passing from the bigs, uh, you know, passing out of the double when you see the opportunity. When you've got someone like, you know, you've got Shaq there, you know, hitting five of eight from three-point land, pretty good for the old assist assist tally. Also, what I like from Maitland is they were just they were just the more consistent team throughout. And funnily enough, after I wrote the notes, I was checking Instagram and Coach Jeremy Jones actually put up a, um, a, po- a story with the highlights from the game that said, we played well in spurts or in bursts. And I was like, yeah, Sutherland did play well in bursts, but Maitland, um, yeah, they kept it going. They actually improved their shoot, their two their two point percentage anyway, actually improved after half time. So it went up, they were they shot thirty-nine percent in the first and second quarters and then an even fifty percent from two point range in the third and fourth. And I also like sixteen second chance points to four. And not just the difference in the number, 16 points to four, but it was 18 offensive rebounds to 12 in favour of Maitland, which meant when Sutherland did get an O-board, Maitland still weren't giving up second-chance points. They only gave up four second-chance points off 12 offensive rebounds and scored 16 off 18 of their own. Washington and Hunter had five O-boards apiece. I mean, they're just... I mean, Liv White is an outstanding rebounder, but you know she can't do it all by herself against the tandem of Maddie Washington and Sydney Hunter. They're just going; they're they're both right up there in terms of like league leaders in rebounds. And as long as those two are getting on the on the glass and bringing the ball down, it's going to be very tough for any team to match them on the glass. They did recognize the pick and pop for Maddie Norris, but um, just on a couple of occasions. 
probably left her a bit too open. Uh, always tough. I think Sutherland have got that pretty much nailed down, that play to get Maddie Norris open. She has shot three of eight. Uh, I think Maddie probably would have wanted to shoot better considering some of the looks she got. Not really going to berate someone for shooting 37% for three-point range, though, in a game. And they probably could have closed things out a little more cleanly. Things got a little bit erratic there for a little period during the fourth quarter. For all their, for all their good work they did at times, yeah, probably a couple of slips that you don't want to make in the fourth quarter and let those habits creep in because they're the kind of things that will burn you and you get into a big game against a full-strength team. Moving to Sutherland, well, I just mentioned this. Um, Norris on the pick and pop, getting their scorers open. Like Coach Jeremy said, they played well in bursts, uh, but they shot just 12.5% from two-point range in the fourth quarter. They actually shot... 60% from three-point range in the fourth quarter, but yes, 12.5% from three-point from two-point land in the fourth quarter, which is uh, not going to help you come back. It was a 19 to 14 fourth quarter, so Maitland just edged it out from an eight-point lead after three to the end of the game. Like seeing Callie Hovatter with a little bit more responsibility, getting the ball in her hand, especially early on, really making good decisions whether to you know pull up and. That pull-up jumper she loves or that little floater or whether to dump it off. It's probably tough. You know, they're really playing, you know, Hovada, Fabro, Nicholson. You know, all good with the ball in their hand, all good scorers, all good at moving the ball. Uh, but, yeah, seeing Callie get a bit more opportunity was good to see. She finished with 12 points, three rebounds and four assists. Two turnovers. Uh, Sullivan finished with 14 turnovers and compare that to Maitland with 11. So, actually, not bad. Not bad turnover numbers. I think... The difference from Sutherland when they were running with seven compared to, like, say, Comets without Panousis and Heal is it didn't actually get their young players' experience in a game situation. Like, when you watch these games with your short head, you're like, oh, we'll talk about in the next game about Comets, you know, oh, it's great to see Piper Anderson and Alex K. Ruse get a bigger opportunity. But Jordan Dewhurst was already starting before Nicholson got here or six-man when Nicholson got here. And Lani Bourbonnuk and Gabby Nancaro are... Uh, they got a little bit of playing time, but they didn't have the responsibility that, say, some of the other younger players have been getting in some of the other teams that have been shorthanded, which is unfortunate. But I guess that's just what happens when you've got to send the rest of your youth league team to actually go and play youth league. As I mentioned, they gave up 18 offensive rebounds overall. Um, just losing some rebounding contests that they really should have won. It's probably just the players they're going up against, Washington and Hunter. Um, but I'm sure, I know Jeremy Jones is a big um, proponent of preventing the team, the opposition getting on the offensive glass. So I'm sure even if it was Matty Washington and Sydney Hunter, he won't take the, you know, he, the team won't use it as an excuse and neither will he. So I'm sure they'll be drilled back into them. And I mentioned the 12.5% from two-point range in the final quarter. They also didn't hit a three in the second quarter. And that was what I mentioned with them having some good looks and not knocking them down. Sutherland probably, uh, especially in the second and fourth quarter where they had their lowest scores, is where they maybe could have kept that close right down to the wire if they just you know hit shots a little better. But wrapping things up, Sutherland... As I mentioned earlier, can only now reach 16 wins. They do have the season series over COE and North, but I would say at this stage, COE is the one more likely. And to get to 16, they'll have to beat Canberra, Albury-Wodonga and Manly-Warringah. And two of two of those are away. Manly's the game at home. They probably can do it with Nichols, if Nicholson's back in the lineup. But Maitland, they'd have to be very happy sitting 11-7, and seven, 
big chance of getting fifth and sixth. They play Illawarra and Penrith in their next two games. Illawarra coming off a good week, but Maitland are still fancy their chances in that one. Of course, Talia Tupaya is now over, going to be going over to New Zealand, so Penrith will be without her. I think Maitland, they should expect 13 wins this season, which should get them sixth, maybe seventh. We'll see how things play out. Overall, um, yeah, fit. Very entertaining game, yeah. Enjoyed watching Fabro versus Riley. Uh, enjoyed watching Liv White go against Hunter and Washington. Well, Liv White did finish with 10 and 12. Just could have used a little extra help in the front court. Uh, yeah, of course, and no Hannah Klein. And, and as I mentioned, Gala was at Youth League. And with Matty Norris on the pick and pop more than in the paint, yeah, a little tough. But I'm sure Sutherland will regroup. It was interesting you mentioned uh, the two-point percent t- uh, field goal percentage for Sutherland in the fourth was only 12 and a half. And my initial thought was, oh, maybe that was fatigue because, you know, they only played with seven, really, only really ran seven players. But then you mentioned that they hit three. So I'm not too sure what um, attributed to this, the, the very low uh, field goal percentage from the two-point range. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, Maitland got some great defenders in there. Um, three, three blocks from Maddie Washington in the final quarter wouldn't have helped. Probably just a matter of uh, shoot 0%. You know, these things even out in the end over the course of a game sometimes. Maybe it was just ones they were missing, they started hitting. You see it a lot in fourth quarters of games. Play, you know, defense gets a little tired closing out in the fourth quarter and suddenly you've got a few more open shots. Yeah, I think you're right. It's um, really interesting in the fourth quarter close game. <clears throat> like you said, people were just a little bit tired on the closeout but then they start to panic a bit more or have a bit more of a sense of urgency when they're under the basket because they don't want to give away any twos. And I think in the back of your mind as well, you're like, oh, look, you're not going to make a three in the stretch. You know, you've played the whole game. What's the likelihood that you're going to hit this three in the stretch of the game? And they, and they do. So then when it's un- those scoring opportunities are under the basket, you as a defender, you're trying to like do everything you possibly can in desperation to make sure they don't get something easy. Um, and we know that the likes of Washington and Hunter really don't like to give too much away to their opposition. Uh, not in the slightest. <laughs> but that's really great for Maitland. I'm glad that they're building some character along the way with this season. I've, and they're really kind of coming together at the right time. Perhaps not peaking as quickly as some other teams, but they're certainly going in the right direction. I think that their growth over this season has been quite stable and steady. Like overall, regardless of how they end their season, it's been a really successful season for their women's program. Oh, 100%. You know, they keep, you know, they keep Shaq around and Rachel Williams and keep their imports or get equal level next season. You know, they keep, keep things going. Yeah, and I think that, that steady growth is why they probably absorb the loss of Mila better than maybe we expected they would. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. So now that you've got your uh, game of misery out of the way... <laughs> Oh, purely because you're the Sutherland Shark supporter. Uh, what was the other game you got to cover? Uh, so I went with the game I was very, very fortunate, nay, honoured to call, which was Sydney Comets versus Aubrey Wodonga on Sunday afternoon, sitting there in my Oregon State T-shirt, watching Michaela Pivik get a triple-double. She was on quad-double watch at one point. She had double figures for points and then eight rebounds, seven assists and seven steals at halftime or just after halftime. So she was on quad double watch at some point. I'll start with Comets and what I liked about Comets was when you look at that lineup, no Panousis, no heel. What do you think? Oh, no, they're not going to hit threes. No way. Oh, sorry. 
Sarah Wager, Drew Toliafoa, Alex K. Ruse combined for eight of nine threes to start proceedings. Team finished nine of 16 overall. I think they finished nine of 12 as a group. But yes, nine of eight of nine to start the game. They hung with Aubrey Wodonga throughout and actually were up double figures in the fourth quarter, uh, were Sydney Commerce, despite missing a WNBL player and an Opal. They had that three-point shooting humming. Uh, Sarah Wacher absolutely, I think she hits, she hit six threes the previous night in the loss to Newcastle with with an elbow that she um, took a knock. She was like giving it the ice spray before both games this weekend and still managed to come out and hit six threes against Newcastle and then bury four or five the next day against Albury Wodonga. They really did a good job of getting Piper Anderson, the catch on the wing, getting her one-on-one with the defender and just taking off with that first step I step i described it to someone as people say she's so fast and i said yeah that's because her stride length is the width of a suburb it is massive she just takes off with that first step and she is gone she is past you would take off left hand off the left wing right hand on the right wing but more on the left wing not sure if that's just how the situation presented itself finished with 19 points uh six of 11 from two point range Jada Crawshaw, again, doing, doing Jada Crawshaw things. Athletic, length, crashing the boards, being an absolute menace on defense with her length and athleticism, attacking the rim. Finished with 22 points, 12 rebounds, 2 assists, a steal, and 3 blocks. Unfortunately, fouled out with about 5 minutes to play, and that was when uh, things really started to swing Aubrey Wodonga's way. It was a heartbreaking way for her to um, foul out because... The referee originally pointed for an offensive foul on Michaela Pivik, which would have been her fourth. Instead, Pivik stays on three fouls. Crawshaw fouls out with five minutes to play. Importantly also, Crawshaw spent some time out. When she got her fourth foul, she also took a knock to the head and needed to be um, bandaged up around the head. So she looked like a rugby union front row with that bandage. Like she was about to pack down in the scrum. But she came back out and was really so good for them throughout the contest. And just everyone who got this shot really stepped up for comments across both games, but it showed more in this game the way they finished. Narrow defeat, 81-79. What I didn't like so much about Comets, um, I mentioned Michaela Pivy having seven steals. Well, part of it was because Comets got a little too excited seeing someone like Piper Anderson bolt down court and trying these 70-80 foot full court passes where... You know, someone like Pivy's just going to get back and, you know, just grab it with absolute ease. Um, probably just players don't have the passing range that someone like, you know, Heal or Panousas have. Just just physical strength where you can just fling it like that. Um, yeah, the ball, it wasn't always like Pivy or someone or Mahadi or someone jumping up to grab it. It was like falling in their chest somewhere between half court and the three-point line. It was a timeout in the third quarter. I don't think we saw another one for the rest of the game, indeed. Michaela didn't get another steal for the entire contest either. So once they uh, got rid of that, certainly set them uh, set them up nicely heading into the fourth quarter. Once Crawshaw fouled out, they were really, um, really struggling to stop Mallory Bates. Bates is tall. She's got length. She's got a really high release. She can finish around the ring. A uh, couple of baskets that she had in the midway through the fourth quarter that um, got Aubrey Wodonga back in the game. You got to let the kids play, but sometimes they just... Uh, you know, decision-making's 
not always the best from your younger players, but look, you play the two teams you played this weekend, Newcastle and Auburn, you'd probably get that out of your system quicker in those two games than you would in a season of playing 10, 15 minutes a game with very little responsibility. Yeah, they lost both games, but they should be very, very um, buoyed by the way they played. Everyone stepped up. Drew Tolliefowl played a captain's knock. Uh, younger players stepped up. Might have lost, but I was really happy with what I saw from Comets. It was a team that actually won the game, and it was the Aubrey-Wodonga Bandits, even though they uh, had their troubles in the fourth quarter. Pivik doing everything well. 18 points, 14 rebounds, uh, 10 assists, 7 steals. Uh, didn't finish as well around the basket as she would have liked. Uh, finished with five offensive rebounds, though. And then Mallory Bates just uh, cleaning up around the basket. 26 points, 16 rebounds, 13 of 20 from the field, all from close range. Really liked, mentioned it during the call, Liz Murphy buried eight threes earlier in the season. She knocked down another four in this one. Uh, some really clutch ones as well, just in big moments, big momentum-shifting baskets. Uh, she finished with 16 points. Uh, Mahardy finished with 17 points, four rebounds, seven assists and six steals. Experienced players just stepping up when they need to. And then Murphy just pulls the trigger. She's got so much confidence now from beyond the arc, even though she's so young. And then, of course, Mallory Bates at both ends, but especially at the defensive end. Didn't commit a foul and dished out five blocks in the process. So, you know, swatting the ball away like that and never getting it wrong once. Pretty impressive. Did find themselves in a bit of foul trouble, apart from Bates. As I mentioned, that fifth foul on Crawshaw could have gone the other way. So, yeah, I think Hannon, Mahardy, Murphy all finished with three-plus fouls. They could not get to the free-throw line. Uh, Comets refused to foul Bates. I think they realized that fouling Bates was asking for an and-one more than it was actually going to stop her from putting the ball in the basket. Comets actually only committed 11 fouls to the game, but with only eight players and... If I remember correctly, I don't think Candelano, like Candel, Megan Candelano didn't actually play. So they really only used seven players. They committed four turnovers in the first 70 seconds of the fourth quarter. You don't want to give any team momentum, especially a team that's been building confidence all game. And that was when Comets got out to that double-digit lead. I think they got out to an 11-point lead. Bandits called a timeout down 11 or, th- 11 or 13. Bates got two baskets. Comets still up by nine. And then Comets called a timeout. The problem is when you call a timeout, the opposition get to have a chat as well. After that, Bandits went on a run. And uh, that was the run that won the game after that timeout down 74-65. But interestingly, and looking at the play-by-play, it looks like they'd only called two timeouts. So I think Band- uh, Comets had a timeout to play with. And if they did, they didn't take it down 81-79 with 30 seconds to play. The play that they ended up running ended with Alex Oliver trying to take on Mallory Bates, which ended about as you'd expect. I think Oliver was well into a move to the basket before she could have even recognised that K. Roos was open for the pass, which would have been a wide open three. It ended 81-79 to leave Aubrey Wodonga now 10-8. and eight. They do play Sutherland, Canberra and Maitland to finish. They're certainly in the box seat when it comes to finals, holding on to that eighth spot. And as I mentioned earlier, Comets now top four dreams dashed, now playing for fifth at best. Just two points. One, going back to you mentioned about those full court passes early in the game for Comets, uh, not being as well executed as you would have liked, you know, with Panousis and Heel there. I think the other downfall of that is that Alexandra being a shorter court, meaning that you have a lot less time and, and distance to be able to execute those passes. So you have to make your decisions a lot quicker than what you probably normally would. And especially like the kind of the rule of thumb, especially in transition, if you want to throw that pass, 
you've got to throw it well before halfway. And the closer you get to halfway, you basically shouldn't throw it because it's either going to go out of court or um, someone's going to be able to catch up. So I think that's perhaps just a bit of a refining of skill there. The other thing I was going to ask, you mentioned that uh, Comets did call that one timeout in the second half, but then it ended up going more in Aubrey's favour than Comets' favour, despite the Comets calling the timeout. Was that timeout in that context, part of the game and in that context of the game, like worthwhile otherwise? Definitely. It definitely was because after the timeout bandits called, Mallory Bates got two of the easiest layups you will ever see. And if they hadn't called that timeout, you know, they would have been adjusting on the fly to that. That's the gamble, I guess, isn't it? Certainly is. Mm-hmm. The last play uh, was so unfortunate because Alex Oliver actually tipped away the inbounds. Um, Com- Comets had a foul to give, so with a couple of seconds to play, they fouled. And Oliver tipped away the inbounds pass from Bates. And if it had got out in front, she might have had a chance to catch up and at least throw up a prayer. But she's tipped it and it's knocked, It's actually hit her on the head and just bounced away from everyone and no one even had a chance to catch up to it until right on the buzzer. So just one of those unfortunate things. I mean, it was already in a low percentage play, but just, yeah, um, tipping the ball away maybe actually yeah, yeah, prevented them from getting the steal. Which The young talent for the Comets really stood their ground against a very talented bandit, so... I think they should be proud of themselves this weekend. Future's so bright, they got to wear shades. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that, that song came out about 10 years before any of them were born, but regardless. <laughs> I'm sure they've seen it on a hashtag or something since then, right? Definitely. It'll come back on TikTok as like a throwback song. But once again, you were tasked with the men and you picked the same matchup I did for one of the games I hear. Yeah, and now, look, wasn't planning that because, you know, full disclaimer, I did ask Lockie what games he was going to do, so I wouldn't do the same. But once I started going through the results, the game that I did want to cover was the North's Aubrey uh, game for the men that went into double overtime. But listen, I I did not have time to watch a full game that went into double overtime. Uh, I only got home from Asia Cup last night quite late, and then I went to bed at 7.30. And then I had to, you know, work a full day like a regular Joe that we are. Um, So, unfortunately, I just couldn't squeeze in a game that went into double overtime to review for the episode. So, apologies. Um, So, I ended up choosing the Maitland Mustangs and Sutherland Sharks at Federation Centre in Maitland. And the reason why I ended up choosing this game is that I feel like we've talked a lot on this podcast about Maitland Mustangs rising to the occasion rather than playing at the level of their opposition because we feel like that has been probably their weak spot of the season. So that's why I was interested to watch this game to see if they'd made any changes or how it was they went about to get such a convincing win over the Sharks. Um, So first off, Sutherland Sharks didn't have Ryan Cabrera. Um, Do you have any intel there, Lockie? Is he injured? Uh, I'm not sure why AC wasn't there. Uh, Adrian Cabrera. I say Ryan Cabrera like the singer from the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, not sure why AC wasn't uh, on the roster. Um, I have to uh, investigate that one. And again, apologies. I do know it's Adrian Cabrera. <laughs> Ryan Cabrera is cemented in my head because I grew up in the 2000s and he was one of those 
singer-songwriters that were uh, all over um, American pop stations and stuff. And he was also had a stint in the hills when he dated Audrina. <laughs> so, listen, uh, that's, that's what my, is taking up rent space in my head at this point in time. Uh, but, yes, no Cabrera. Interestingly, uh, Daniel Milburn only played 16 minutes, but the commentators uh, let us know that he's actually doesn't live in Maitland anymore. So he sometimes struggles getting to training. And uh, understandably, if you can't come to training, then your game time's going to be limited. So, but yeah, otherwise, this game was also important for the, for the sake of finals placings and ladder positions. And what was really, really interesting is basically if we the start of the game, if we didn't have this particular first quarter of this game, I think things would have been a lot different. It was, uh, in a nutshell, it was one of those games that had lots of turnovers, <laughs> lots of passive D. Uh, and the turn, and I know that's contradictory to say it was there was passive defense and lots of turnovers because you would think if there's passive defense, then there wouldn't be as many turnovers. Uh, not the case, unfortunately. Just a lot of sloppy passes, a lot of people not in the right floor spots, sometimes like a lot of uh, rushing in decision-making, which hence the turnovers too. And there were lots of times in the game where there were a lot of play phases that were back and forth uh, in quick succession, but neither one of the point guards were taking the reins to slow it down after the third or fourth. It would kind of just get a little bit of haywire. But listen, if there wasn't the turnovers causing chaos in the games, it was the foul count. So this game was kind of reminiscent of one of those NBL games where there are a lot of fouls, which caused also more stoppages. To be honest, by the time it got to the fourth quarter, the game was a little bit boring, but it was no fault of the players. I mean, no fault of the players in the sense that they didn't perform their best and, you know, their skill sets weren't on show. It was just that the number of stoppages with fouls uh, made it a little less entertaining. Uh, Maitland had 18 fouls and Sutherland had 17 fouls. The likes of Will Cranston Lown, Beasley and Mitchell from Sutherland They all had three fouls in the second quarter. So that at least put a little bit of a spice to it. Um, But this first quarter was super interesting. Again, how we say, you know, Maitland tend to play to the level of their opposition and not to their own standard. This time in this first quarter, that is exactly what Maitland did. They stayed to their game plan. It was really, really nice to watch, especially in the half court. Um, So straight out of the gates, Maitland were running really nice transition, but uh, as a pack. So anytime Maitland had an opportunity for a transition basket, there are at least three guys down the court. And I think that really exploited that uh, passive transition defense from Sutherland quite early. It kind of looked like Sutherland were playing a practice match or it was at the scrimmage at the end of training. They just seemed to step behind everything. So transition D being one of them. Half court D, they looked like they were always on the back foot and playing very reactive. Uh, So Maitland had a good opportunity early to get a lot of nice open threes, taking the ball one-on-one on on the drive and drawing a foul. Full credit to Maitland because their ball movement in the first quarter and most of the second was really, really good. And I think that is all down to details of being in the right floor spots. So some of the turnovers for both teams, but probably Sutherland in particular, came from just not being in those exact right floor spots at the right time. So I think it was mostly when guys on transition would penetrate and dish to the corner for like a transition three 
or uh, even times in the half-court offense when Lockie Hutchison was kind of stuck having to make something out of nothing. People would be in the deep corner for three, but they'd be just that step above the baseline, uh, making that passing angle a little bit too difficult, and they really needed to be like right in the corner where the baseline and the sideline meets. So little things like that kind of made a big difference. But yeah, Maitland as well in the first quarter, their field goal percentage was really, really good. And I think it was really a case of like Maitland getting on top of Sutherland early, making great shots, all coming out of a very well half court, uh, executed half court offense with just really great ball movement. Um, But I think actually as well, thinking about it, the half court offense from Maitland, the thing that actually worked for them the best is the movement off the ball. There were always guys exchanging, screening down, setting a staggered screen. There was always something happening. And that made it a lot easier for the likes of um, their scorers to find opportunities. And we're gonna, I'm going to sing his praises again. But Billy Parsons, what really stands out for me is that he always he finishes a lot of his shots under pressure, whether that's off an offensive rebound or in transition. He will take someone one-on-one and he just has great patience under the basket. Defensively for Maitland, uh, their help D was really quite good in parts in the early parts of the game, but then that kind of fell away a little bit. And um, it went as far as that they were able to extend their man-to-man defense well past the three-point line. And I think Sutherland like felt a little bit suffocated by that. That's when they really had to turn to Hutchinson to try and um, get something going off a pick and roll with Gerlach. Um, defensively for Sutherland, Passive um, in the first part of the game, um, and this actually led to a 12-2 to lead uh, by Maitland within the first um, seven and a half minutes of the first quarter. Uh, so they really caught Sutherland falling asleep in the start, and Sutherland had to call a timeout at that stage. So from the second quarter, though, Sutherland started to throw in a 2-3 zone, um, and I think when the ball was being inbounded in the backcourt, they tried to trap uh, the first part down on the sideline. So generally the point guard would come down, see the zones already set, uh, throw a wing pass, and on that first catch, Sutherland were trying to trap. And that worked sometimes, but they got a couple of turnovers off that, and other times they got fouls again. Uh, but some kind of uh, interesting stats that stood out to me, I mentioned the fouls before, 18 to 17, Maitland to Sutherland. Turnovers was 23 to 27, Maitland to Sutherland. Oh, now, when no. I, when I said at the start of this review that it was a game of turnovers and foul, I was not exaggerating on the turnovers. Yeah. Sutherland had 15 turnovers, like, within three minutes of three quarter, of the third quarter. You only want 12 a game, right? Correct. 15 and essentially a half is way too many. And then they had another five in total in the third quarter. Yeah, so that that was a lot. It was a lot of turnovers. Uh, (laughs) Rebound count was 41 to 34 in favour of Maitland. But Sutherland ended up having 16 offensive rebounds out of their 34 total, uh, which I think, you know, not entirely but certainly helped contribute to 15 of their second chance points. So that really kept them in touch. Yet, Like I said, if it wasn't for that first quarter that Maitland won 30 to 16, by the time Sutherland kind of got going a little bit and started getting some second chance points, it was starting to feel a little bit more competitive. Points in the paint, 68 to 48. The 68 of 110 points from Maitland were just in the paint. 
And that was also things like um, Paul, like second line of rotation wasn't there. Even sometimes in the zone, they weren't communicating with each other very well. It just like just defensively, just wasn't happening for Sutherland this game, which it really isn't like them at all. Because especially in the past, I know that Sutherland's defense can be quite intense uh, to the point where they they're getting under the skin of their opposition mentally. Just did not see that this game. And then points from turnovers, 24 points to Maitland and t- just 12 from Sutherland. So, yeah, it was those stats probably stood out to me the most uh, as team stats. But for individual performances, Maitland had a fairly even spread of scorers. They had six people in double figures. So Kevin Warren probably had one of his best games. He had 17, 4 and 5. James Hunter had 18 and 7. Cranston Lown had 18 points, 12 assists, and five steals. Uh, Matt Gray had 16, 8, and 3. Billy Parsons had 13, 7, 7, and 3. It's just everywhere, this guy. In 20 minutes. That's what he did in 20 minutes. What a legend. Uh, for Sutherland, Lachlan Hutchinson had 21, 2, and 2, and 3 steals. Angus Lake, it says, he only, he started in replacement of Cabrera. Uh, Cabrera. Uh, he only ended up playing 18 minutes, and he had 6 and 6. Uh, but he, when he was on the court, he played, he was great. Very crafty, great footwork. I know that you've sang his praises before. Um, I would have liked to have seen him on a little bit more, I think. Interestingly, uh, he, um, three of three from two-point range and uh, 0 of two from deep. Uh, definitely early in the season, he um, was pigeonholed a bit as a shooter, partly because he hit four of his first five shots on debut. Um, but since then, he's like really started to use his first step, you know, because it's a real strength of his to get to the rack. So Jordan Mitchell, he started as well. He had 18 and 3 and Gerlach had 12 and 3. And then Gak ended up having 12 and 8, and he, but he only played 24 minutes. Yeah, they're really trying to um, – there's 80 minutes in the four and five spots to go around, and you've now got Beasley, Gerlach, and Gak to uh, – distribute them amongst. And I think if you add up those three players' numbers, it's probably not far shy of an even, what is it, adds up to about 71 minutes. So yeah, just trying to distribute the minutes, I think. It's just as well that they got Gak, though, in that five spot because Beasley's found himself in foul trouble quite a lot this season. Some of the matchups that were quite interesting was that, you know, Hunter Gerlach would have liked a bit more one-on-one back to the post kind of stuff from them. Uh, but I felt like they... We're a little bit more on the receiving end of um, their really good guards like Cranston, Lown and, and Hutchinson. And uh, Cranston, Lown and Hutchinson, they matched up a little bit, but then Kevin Warren ended up guarding Hutch for a little bit lot more than Cranston, Lown. And then some, sometimes Jack Edwards also had his turn of um, guarding Hutchinson. So I think uh, in the absence of Cabrera again, Maitland definitely had the luxury of being able to to rotate three very good defenders on one very good point guard who didn't have a lot of backup on the day. Otherwise, there was a little bit of chipper in this game, a little bit of chat, a bit of tension very early. There was a period in the first quarter where they called three charges in a row and then over the back foul on Beasley. So it started to get quite heated early. Uh, And Maitland got a tech warning in that first quarter as well. So that's how kind of chipper it was getting. But it didn't escalate into any tech fouls. Um, Callum Norris did get an unsportsmanlike foul later in the game on a transition bucket where he took a swat 
But uh, it could have gone either way, to be honest. You've got Warren in a foot race with Norris down the court. And Norris, you know, in out of desperation, just took a slap at the ball because it's like, look, do I make it hard for this guy or do I just give him two points? Mm. So he just made a slap at it. And uh, I think they thought it was a bit too heavy-handed and he ended up getting an unsportsmanlike. But otherwise, that was more or less it. It was it was fine. It was a basketball game. It was, it was fine. Out of all the games this season, that was one of them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was a game that was played. Also, that was the only game I managed to cover, to be fair, because like I said, I was at Asia Cup covering a whole bunch of other things uh, that I'll get to mention when we get to our news and gossip section. Are we actually at the news and gossip section now of our show? Well, I don't really have any news or gossip to go around, but I just would like to shout out some people, if that's all right. Because um, last weekend was actually my last game for the season at Comets. They do have one more home game, but I won't be calling that. Um, so I just want to shout out to uh, Nick Gilbert, Michael Morgan, Freddie Jensen, the uh, Comets Youth League men's coach, who have been my co-commentators this year. Freddie actually uh, stepped up this weekend. He wasn't meant to do it, but uh, Nick was late getting back from his junior rep coaching. So he stood up and commentated the women's game with me this weekend. So thank you uh, to everyone at Comets who's helped in the production. Uh, I've had a lovely season up there, and I look forward to hopefully being back in 2024 if my Sutherland schedule allows me. What about you, Squin? Do you have any news? Uh, the only news I really have is that uh, now, like I've mentioned already too many times on this episode, I was at Asia Cup. We had three NBL One East players playing in Asia Cup, the three being Talia Tupaya from Penrith Panthers, Loz Nicholson from Sutherland Sharks, and Shyla Hill from Sydney Comets. And I was lucky enough to talk to Talia and Loz in the mix zone during the competition and this is what they have to say. So I read online, Talia, that you recently qualified uh, with the FIBA accreditation to play for Tall Ferns. Did, was the conversation to play for t- Tall Ferns start with you or with Guy Malloy? Um, I actually started with Kennedy Kuriyama when I was playing for Caps. He kind of mentioned to me and I had it in the back of my head. Um, and then I played Tohihi back in the NZ. Um, and I talked to Jodie a little bit throughout the season about going to play. And it was just a bit hard because I knew that I couldn't come back and play for Aussie. Um, so at the end of the season, Guy rang me. Um, and I, we were texting back and forth for a little bit. Um, and that's where I guess it ended as well because I just chose to play for the Tolphins. And, yeah, you just mentioned that you played in the New Zealand League. You're the reigning MVP after the league uh, had its debut season last year and you're going back for a second season. How does that uh, competition compare to the likes of NBL1 and WNBL? Um, yeah, I think it's getting there to uh, the same similarity as NBL1. Um, the first season last year, so... Um, we're going to have troubles and waves throughout the season, but uh, I think we've really picked up this season. Um, we've got a rapid league coming in before the actual game for Tohihi as well, so that's going to help build um, the bench confidence as well. Um, so, yeah, it's quite similar. And uh, just finally, it's been really great seeing you back playing at the FIBA level. The last time you played for a FIBA level was 2019, like you said, for Australia. What's it like playing back at this level after a pretty eventful 12 months for you? Yeah, I guess it's been a long time. Um, certainly different now playing for Tall Ferns. Um, it's kind of cool to resep- uh, represent um, that side of the culture and Aotearoa. Um, but, you know, it feels great to be back. Um, yeah, like I said, I haven't been for a while, so it just feels really awesome to be here. Uh, so Loz Nicholson, just after the semi-final game against China, tough 14-point loss. Um, how are you feeling after that one? 
Yeah, it was a really tough game. Um, you know, China are a really great team. They've been together for a lot of years now and we were expecting a bit of a dogfight from them and we definitely got that. Um, and unfortunately, we just couldn't get over the line tonight. But, you know, we've got to regroup and get ready for tomorrow. As best as you can, try and describe what it's like playing for your home country on home soil but having the venue atmosphere feel like an away game. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible playing on home soil. Um, it makes it, a, like, a lot extra special um, I guess is what I'm trying to say and um, but you know China they bring a lot of fans over here and it felt like a 50-50 crowd out there tonight and you know that's why China is so great um, they bring people along with them and they are just as loud as Australia so it was very exciting out there. Just finally it's been a really eventful week here for you with the Opals uh, what are probably some of your key highlights from the tournament so far? Uh, oh. Look, I'm sure I'll look back on that game and um, consider that a highlight, but hopefully hopefully tomorrow will be the highlight um, if we can medal, and that's the plan. But, you know, also just hanging out with a really great bunch of girls. We came in together just a week and a half, two weeks ago, and, um, you know, in that short time, I feel like we have gelled together. We've really got to know each other, and that part has been really special. Uh, just to add to that, because I feel like you had a similar preparation time with the 2021 Asia Cup that you were also a part of and got a bronze medal. Are there some similarities or differences between the two squads? Yeah, I think that there's only three players from that um, Asia Cup that are at this one. So it is a very different new look squad, um, but, you know, um, different but still fantastic to be a part of. Awesome. Thanks so much, Loz. Thank you for having me. Um, the only thing I will add about Talia is that uh, in the bronze medal match against the Australian Opals, she bolted off the court very early in the first quarter and didn't return for the rest of the game. She looked like she was in a lot of pain, unfortunately, and Guy Malloy shared with us during the press conference after that game that she has been living with a sublux shoulder for a while and uh, it seems like it, it either popped out or she heard it a little bit and didn't want to risk coming back in. So that's why, unfortunately, she didn't play that game. So hopefully she's okay to go and play in the New Zealand League now that Asia Cup's all wrapped up. Yeah, defending MVP. Oh, I should also mention, other than players, we also had an MBL1 East coach at the Asia Cup in Renee Garlop. Yes. Renee Garlop being the MB- the North's women's head coach um, and also former player. But she was on, she was an assistant coach for the Australian Opals at this Asia Cup. And as someone who has known Renee since bottom age under 16's country tour trials, which is a very long time, uh, it was really cool and wild and weird to see her on the bench as uh, an Australian Opals assistant coach. It was a very proud moment for myself and our friends. Lovely, lovely to to see um yeah i've known renee obviously not for as long as you but um yeah for a long time great to see oh just great to see coaches in general um you know developing and getting those getting those spots but especially when it's someone you know it's uh great to see at the start we had emily simons from the north women working the tournament Em also was part of the local organising committee for the world cup last year and she was also part of the age cup this year and let me be frank that stuff could not run without her. So oh, No, not in the slightest. No, not in the slightest. So just when you think a tournament is easy to run and run smoothly, it's because you've got the likes of the M. Simons in the background making it all work. So 
Great representation for MBL1 East at an international event. Actually, another little bit of news and gossip, Lockie. Uh, Christina Moore from the Hornsby Karingai Spiders announced that she has signed to play with a team in Belgium. So she's going to go head over to Belgium and play in their pro league. Uh, she was someone that we were really hoping was going to stay and play WNBL for the Flames, but getting a pro contract in Belgium isn't half bad either. So congratulations to Christina Moore. And also Vanessa Panousis, who we often mention on the show from the Sydney Comets, has re-signed with the Sydney Flames for the next WNBL season, much to our delight. So also congratulations to Vanessa Panousis. So now that we've done our game review and our news and gossip, it's time for All-Star 5. Lockie, you have the honours of doing the women's first. I certainly do. And obviously with, you know, 13 games this week, it took something it, it literally took something ridiculous to get a spot when you think um Isla Jufferman's big 30 and 11 on Thursday night isn't in here Leilani Mitchell's 21 I think it's 21 7 8 and 7 steals or something like that isn't in there because we actually had two triple doubles this week and I'll kick it off with one of them it's Michaela Pivik from Albury Wodonga Started off with 15 points, 13 rebounds, 7 assists, 2 steals, and 2 blocks in the loss to Norse. And then followed that up on Sunday with 18 points, 14 rebounds, 10 assists, and 7 steals in the win over Comets. She was on quad double at halftime with those steals. Second triple-double of the weekend came for Jordan Dewhurst. She had a slower start to the weekend with 7 points, 4 assists. Uh, four rebounds, an assist, and a steal in the loss to Maitland. Came out firing against Hornsby Karingai with 14 points, 10 rebounds, 12 assists, and a pair of steals in a 116-67 to win. Sutherland teammate Maddie Norris, 21 points, 7 rebounds, 3 assists, and a block in the loss to Maitland. But then 41 points, 12 rebounds, 4 assists, 2 blocks in the 116-68 win over Hornsby. And then... For all the triple-doubles, this may be even more ridiculous. Michaela Domkins for Inner West. 38 points, 29 rebounds, 6 assists and 2 steals in a 104-56 win over Hornsby-Karingai. And then finally, Nicole Munger of Newcastle. 28 points, 20 rebounds, 5 assists, 3 steals and a block, leading Newcastle to victory over Comets, 71-50. to And then following that up with 25 points, 11 rebounds, 5 more assists and another steal in a 77-74 nail-biting win over Norse, which keeps them in contention for top spot at the end of the season. When it takes those kind of performances to make the All-Star 5... And what didn't make it, you know it was a massive week. 29 rebounds is ridiculous. There's players who don't get 29 rebounds in a season that play decent minutes. Anyway, moving on to the men, who also had a vast number of games this week. Yeah, the men's All-Star 5 was also another kind of tricky uh, way to work things. It all came down to, I guess, big stats as it normally does. But because there were double headers, there were opportunities for people to be able to back up and uh, produce more and put give them an edge over perhaps some other standout performances. Uh, an honourable mention to Markel Beasley against the Hornsby Spiders, who had 29 points and 12 rebounds, shooting at 80%. But the five that I stuck with starts with Ryan Beastie. Uh, a name that everyone should now be familiar with, who against the Sydney Comets had 25 points, eight rebounds and three assists 
uh, at 75%. The three assists giving him the edge there. Uh, and then we had Dal Feig. Great to see him coming back to form after some up and downs with injuries this season. Against Manly, he had 22 points, 8 rebounds and 8 assists. Again, this, just a little bit of 8 assists has given him the edge uh, to make the All-Star 5. Lewis Holy, uh, now he is someone that you don't want to play jungle ball with. Holy, uh, Michaela Domkins, Nicole Munger, you guys need to sort yourselves out and figure out who is actually the best re- rebounder of this comp. Uh, probably mix in Miles Cherry and Ryan Beastie as well because, like, you guys on the boards are just ridiculous. So Lewis Holy in the double overtime game against Aubrey had 24 points and 25 rebounds. Now, this is over the likes of Michael Parks and Jameer Coleman. 25 rebounds is ridiculous. Uh, speaking of Jameer Coleman, he also had a great weekend. So against Norths, he had 25 points and 14 rebounds. Then he had to back up the next day against Comets where he had 16 points, 19 rebounds, four assists and three steals. And considering it was the double header and he was still putting up good numbers in a whole bunch of different stats, again, thought that gave him the edge for the All-Star 5. Uh, and finishing it off is none other than Dave O'Hickey who against Bankstown, he had 38 points, eight rebounds, five assists and four steals. And to back up the next day against Penrith, he had 24 points, 13 rebounds, and five assists. So Dave O'Hickey is just too deadly for NBL 1 East with those numbers. So that wraps up that All-Star 5. Coming up very soon, we're going to have an interview with a standout uh, guard for the Illawarra Hawks in Freddie Webb. So stick around for that. Uh, now, when you Google our very special guest this week, you'll learn on Wikipedia that they are a retired Filipino basketball player, coach, former politician and television radio personality. But then you'll realise, just as I did, that this is the completely the wrong person and instead who we're looking for is a point guard who likes to dish the dimes all the way from Darwin via Mackay and is now playing for the Illawarra Hawks. It's Freddie Webb. Hi, Freddie. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? Hey, Jacinta. Thanks for having me on. As Squin mentioned, you are, you are from Darwin, and I've got to admit, I'm not too um, across the basketball scene up there. So um, how did your junior career start up there? Yeah, look, Darwin's a, uh, it's a bit of a funky place. We're so remote. We are, we are so far from everything. We don't really have the opportunity to, you know, to go to Sydney to play some tournaments or just to, to go to Newcastle or to go to Illawarra. Our closest place is Alice Springs. That doesn't really have any teams. Um, so for us to go play, we play nationals once a year. If you make the team and you go, um, you know, you often have a pretty, pretty rough trot at nationals. Uh, and then you come back and you don't play anyone else for a whole year. So it's, uh, it's not a massive basketball scene, but it's, uh, it's coming alive. Like the NBL one up there, the Salties, um, has been a massive boost the last couple of years. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I got started back in 2007 when I was about seven. I played for uh, or I, my whole career. I played for Ansett Basketball Club after the airline. Um, so, we still proudly hold that name. I think they were a sponsor back in the day. Um, so, yeah. So, I played for them uh, since I was seven all the way through pretty much my high school career, Premier League. It was a bit of a, I was a bit of a late bloomer. So I, under 12s, uh, we went to Alice Springs for like a, you know, a little tournament and everyone that I was billeted with made our state team. I didn't. <laughs> Born my eyes out, you know, all the rest of it. 
uh, came back under 14s, top age. I was the 10th man on the team, scored four points the entire tournament at club champs. Came back uh, both age, both uh, 16s years. I, you know, wanted to make a team. I was training, was doing everything I could. Uh, I missed out both years. In my top age year, I was proper devastated. You know, I, I thought I should have made it, you know, and I didn't, uh, probably for good reason. And and then 18s, I made it as a bottom ager. Uh, and really, that was between my bottom age 18s and my top age 18s. Uh, I really started to put it together. Um, and all the work that had sort of been building up slowly started to just come to fruition. Uh, so by the time I was top age 18s, I was our captain, uh, our starting point guard. And so when we went to nationals, uh, you know, I had a bit more responsibility and, you know, had a reasonable tournament and then came back and was lucky enough to go to college for two years in Maine. So as far north and as far east as you can get, uh, we had about seven months of snow, you know, negative 25. So a bit of a change from Darwin. So tell, <laughs> tell us about going to those nationals, because as you said, you know, it's, it's tough coming from the NT and, uh, you know, you come up against states with a lot more, you know, the depth, depth of talent is just, I mean, just because the population is so much bigger. What, what's it like going up against the bigger states? Oh, 100%. Uh, I mean, look, I get PTSD walking through the snake pit because they've got all these beautiful photos of New South Wales country, the team that had Angus Glover, Paddy Lancaster, uh, McQuetch, Miles Cherry, uh, Zunick, just a, a ton of guys that absolutely gave us the work, like game one at nationals. Uh, and obviously Paddy's one of my teammates and and we joke about it, but it, it's just the reality of it. Like at the population in Darwin, you're choosing from what, 130,000 in New South Wales, Sydney, Queensland, like you're just choosing from a lot more people, uh, you know, with a, with a lot more playing experience against other kids. So it, it's tough. It's tough. But, you know, you go there, you try and make the NT proud. You try and play with a bit of NT, you know, hustle. Um, but as far as like getting results, it's uh yeah, it's a bit of a grind for sure. Can I ask quickly, what was the turning point between not making the state team top age 16s and then two years later being the starting point guard? So about uh, about my top age 16s, uh, an import came to Darwin to play for Ansett in our Premier League team. I, I was Since I was young, I was very open. I think I had, had a lot of opportunities to travel when I was young and be um, around a lot of people that had status in whatever their field was and was encouraged by my parents to sort of talk to them and be open and whatever else. So whenever an import came to town, I was the first kid, you know, to go up to them and, and ask them questions. Hey, like, where are you from? What college did you go to? How do you train? What do you do? What don't you do? Can you come watch my games? And there was a guy called John King. Uh, he came to Darwin, he played for Ansett, and he took me under his wing. So he'd pick me up every morning before school at about 5.45. We'd work out from about 6 to 7.30. We'd shower, he'd drop me at school. And that happened for maybe maybe the back end of my 16s, bottom age 18s. And I think something that I've learned just as my sort of career has gone is that you can work every day, work, 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 and not see any results. And then at some point, which is unbeknown to you, you just hit this point of inflection where the work compounds and then you get better exponentially. You know what I mean? And it will and happen reasonably quickly but it's only because of that body of work that you've put in. Uh, so I think for me, that's exactly what happened. Bottom age 18s, you know, it was okay. I was really, um, I didn't really play a lot. And I just kept working, kept working, kept working. And then 
in that year, I got exponentially better. And, you know, I remember coming back from 18s that first year and saying, I've got 52 weeks. Like, I don't want anyone to outwork me. I've got 52 weeks to come back and, and try and actually play and make an impact on this team. And, uh, and yeah, it sort of came together. It came together at the right time. And then it's just sort of, you know, been on that trajectory since. And you you mentioned Maine. You parlayed all that, that work and that experience into a uh, spot in college. Um, tell us, what was it like up there? Is Central Maine Community College you went to? Yeah, Central Maine Community College. It was amazing. Um, my roommates from those two years over there are still to this day my best friends. Um, you know, it was going to college. It was my first time ever leaving the house um, as far as living away from home. So you used to do a lot of growing up. Like you have to take care of yourself. You know, you have to build habits. Uh, and if you don't, especially at a junior college, you'll just, you'll fall away. Like it's such a dog eat dog world at junior college that if you're not ready to go in there and fight for everything and outwork people, you're not going to get an opportunity. So, I, I mean, I had a great two years. Um, first year, I was, you know, our six men had come off the bench, played about 15 a game. Second year, I was our starting shooting guard um, for about half the year um, before I got into, had some pretty sort of severe injuries towards the back end of my career. Uh, but as far as the experience there, my coach, uh, Coach Gagne, the snow, like we don't, you know, snows, that's cool, man. <laughs> like throwing snowballs, you know, having hand warmers, that's, that was exciting. That was so different for me. So it was an amazing experience. I would never change it. Are you able to share some of those injuries that you experienced in college? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a, uh, a bit of a funky situation. So I started at our shooting guard position, played okay in the start of the season. It sort of withered off by the break. I, was, I wasn't I was moving right. You know, I was talking to my dad almost every day and he's telling me like, hey, are you hurt? And I said, I don't, I don't think so. Like I feel a bit stiff and a bit uncomfortable, but Nothing, nothing too crazy. By the end of uh, by the end of that year, I knew there was something wrong. I didn't really think it was too severe. That season ended up. Uh, I came home. Uh, actually, funny story. We had a, we had a coach come to watch one of our games. Uh, I spoke to him pre-game about being recruited. You know, to move on after the junior college. I think I went like one for fourteen that game, and uh, and I had never felt so embarrassed in my life. And like, it's funny looking back now. I can appreciate that a good coach recognizes that that's just, that's basketball. You know what I mean? That's, that's how that goes. And that doesn't define who you are as a player. If you have one bad game at the time, I didn't really have that, probably that maturity and that, that wisdom to understand that. So I was just super embarrassed. Didn't want to talk to him anything afterwards. Came home, decided I wasn't going to, you know, decided I was going to stop playing basketball because I was just had such a bad end of the year. Things were hurting, but so I decided I wasn't going to do that. I decided I was going to pursue strength and conditioning. So I, you know, did a couple uh, internships at a Division One college. I interned with the Sacramento Kings NBA team in the strength and conditioning department. Uh, met some really amazing people in that. When I came back to Darwin, I decided oh, I'll play in the Premier League, you know, just for fun, really. And I was playing. I was really enjoying it. And then my hips started hurting again. I got the same sort of feeling that I got towards the back end of college. So. I thought, I better get these checked out. So I went and saw an orthopedic surgeon who sent me for scans. As soon as the results came in and we went and saw him, I remember clear as day walking in there at the ripe old age of 19, 20, maybe. And he just looked at me and said, if you ever want to play again, you need to have double hip surgery ASAP. He said, both your labrums are completely torn. You've got pieces of bone from your pelvis floating around in each hip. The head of your femur is is stuffed. Uh, you need a complete repair on both hips ASAP. So I sort of looked at my parents and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a tough decision. It was more or less of, okay, like 
who's the best person, where do we have to go to do it and let's get it done, which I'm, I'm fortunate to be in that situation where, where I could have done that. Uh, and yeah. And then, so the next step was to Melbourne for about a month with my dad, one, hit, uh, one hip a week apart, uh, on crutches, you know, for a bit sort of back on my feet properly within a couple of weeks and then building up slowly. Um, the physio that did my rehab, Phil and Don was, was excellent. And then sort of back on the court five to six months later, back in Don. Double, double hip surgery. <laughs> so like you said you were back on your feet two weeks later. It's, it sounds crazy to me that, you know, for doing both sides, being that back that quickly. Did that surprise you? Oh, yeah, 100%. I, I thought the same thing. So I, I had my first one and they're, they're encouraging you to get up as soon as you can. So sort of two days after that first one, they, they want you to try and walk, you know, crutches, try and get moving, try and get moving. And then second one, same deal. So yeah, within probably two or three weeks of my second one, um, yeah, I was sort of up and walking. That's just, that's what they want you to do for their rehab, I guess. So, you know, scar tissue doesn't build up and you don't get stiff. So yeah, yeah, I was surprised as well, but that's, I guess that's the way to go now. Evidently it was a success because you've uh, managed to work your way into NBL one and you headed off to Mackay for the two years before playing here. Yeah, exactly. So it was actually, um, it's funny, only looking back on hindsight, can you appreciate, I think, things and the timing of it all. But it was during COVID. It was right before COVID hit because it was December 2019 that I had hip surgery. Um, So right before it sort of hit in Australia. So basketball was shut down. So it wasn't like I was rehabbing while everyone else was playing. No one was playing. So I was rehabbing. I was in a great routine. I was sort of building my body, my mind, everything while that was happening. And I I sort of had to sit and have, have a serious conversation with myself and say, hey, what do you want to do with this? Where, where, where do you want to go? And I, I remember I mapped out a, uh, a timeline and the leagues and what I would have to do in each league to reach the eventual goal of NBL, which it was at the time. And so I had that Premier League in Darwin, which was sort of my post-rehab season, which I played extremely well in. And then I had heard like NBL 1 was a thing. It wasn't in Darwin yet. I you know, heard of the league and I had some people help reach out to a bunch of teams and coaches. So I had a lot of interest from NBL1 Central at the time. And I, uh, I shot an email to the head coach of the Mackay Meteors, which was Joel Carlu, still is today, just saying, hey, this is me. Here's, you know, here's my highlights. Here's my story. Um, I have played against you know, a bunch of the players that you've coached that you know, like contact them and you know, talk to them and see what you think. But I'd love to... And really on my timeline, when I wrote this timeline out, that year was meant to be a development player in the NBA, in the NBL one. I didn't really see myself playing. I was just like, I just want to go and learn. Um, and, you know, Joel came out to Darwin. He, you know, he worked us out. He worked me out. And uh, then season ended up and yeah. And then I signed with him, uh, with Mackay and then flew over there and had two, two great years there under his guidance. So it was a, um, yeah, it was really cool how, how, it, how it sort of, played out and you know always very appreciative of joel for giving my first giving me my first opportunity in nbl1 and uh and really making a making a serious impact on on me as a person and a player did you find as well like mentally in that time off you were essentially forced to take from the game with your double hip surgery um did you find that you needed the break mentally as well and not realize it yeah 100 100 especially coming from college where every day you wake up thinking there's, you know, we had 18 guys on our roster um, thinking everyone's trying to get a scholarship. You just got to, and it's just, you get in this mindset. And when you're so deep in it, sometimes it's hard to sort of pull your head out of the sand and just take a sort of bird's eye view of what's going on. So 
being forced to take that time off um, was probably one of the best things that's happened for my career. Two years in Mackay. Um, how did you find yourself in Illawarra after after finishing up there? Yeah, so um, it's funky. There's a lot of connections. There's like maybe a lot more connections than you'd realize. So Joel, Joel Carlou had come up with uh, Cortez, Tyson Demos, and a couple of other guys. Maddie Campbell might have been on that on that trip as well. Came up to to Darwin, and um, as I'm sure we'll probably touch base on a little bit later. My family, we own a, a crocodile farm and a zoo in Darwin. And so they had come to come to visit the zoo. And uh, I was their tour guide because that was sort of my job as a kid. So I took them around uh, and, you know, talked to them, showed them all the animals. Um, and then, yeah, a couple of years later, I'm, I'm playing for Joel. And then so two years passing Mackay, uh, I had Reese Martin as our point guard my second year. Uh, Tyson had obviously played in Mackay. Timmy Conrad had played in Mackay. Um, not that Lucas Walker played for the Hawks, but he, you know, he's playing with us now and he had played in Mackay. There was more connections than, than you would realize. So I think between all of them um, and, a, and a really good sort of postseason chat with Joel, just saying, hey, listen, time in Mackay was great. Um, but we both agreed that, you know, there could be some other places that would be better for my development. And, and he was great about helping me find those places. And so... Between all of them, they got in contact with uh, with the Hawks, the NBL one team, and uh, and yeah, and so I got a call from Ben Begoli, our assistant, and then talked to Oscar and Nash, and they sold me on coming down here. And next thing you know, I'm here in the Gone. Not a bad place to be, to be honest, because uh, it sounds like you've had humidity, you've had snow, you've had Mackay, and now you're down in the lovely beaches of Wollongong. Exactly, beaches that you can swim in. I'm uh, not used to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you, do you get down get down the beach much? Oh, look, I've been absolutely soaking it up. Um, me and my roommate, uh, Dan Greta, we started a uh, – we put a sticky note on the fridge and we started a streak where every single day we had to get in the ocean. And uh, it got up to about 38 days uh, and then, unfortunately, it was broken. So, But uh, I still do get in there pretty often, like if not every day, every second day. What broke the streak, are you allowed to say? Oh, I am. I am. It was Dan. Dan broke it. He went to Perth. He went to Perth and then made some excuse about not being able to get in the water. And it just wasn't as much fun trying to keep a streak by yourself. But uh, there were some nights, you know, we played a game. I remember who we played and I hadn't swam that day. And so me, Dan and Harry Morris went down to down to North Beach at about 11 p.m. to keep the streak alive. <laughs> like it, we were we were serious about it. <laughs> so you're obviously enjoying your time in Wollongong. Um, apart from playing, are you involved in the club in any other way yeah absolutely um i'm a self-appointed director of walking basketball which is uh i wear that very proudly i think the walking basketball is an awesome program it was a um something i ran in darwin which sort of became very successful we have sometimes 25 30 uh people you know over the age of 50 60 uh, going up and down playing walking basketball and so when i came down here they mentioned that they were starting the program and i said oh great like I've had formal training in this and I ran it in Darwin. So we, when I first got here, they had maybe one, two people rock up and we've had 16 the last couple of weeks. So uh, it's been on the steady climb. Um, and I love it. Like that's, that's what it is. That's especially when you're in NBL one, like I mean, being in the communities is part of the whole thing. You don't just sign to, to come and play hoops. Like you sign to, to represent a community, you sign to be part of the community. So Walking basketball, uh, mini hawks, the three to five year olds, and then you know we're in school holidays now, so 
as we touched on uh, before the pod started, I was working at a school holiday camp from 8.30 to 3 all day today, which which is great. And, you know, and we had so many kids there saying, you know, like we saw you on Saturday, we, you know, we come to all the games and, and it's great. It's, it's, it's really cool that they can see that as a pathway, you know, for themselves. And I think that's not to digress, but I think that's what, the salties in Darwin is, is what, why is that so important? Because growing up, we didn't see that. I didn't see, I never had an NBL one. I never had an NBL. Like I remember uh, the Adelaide 36 has gone up there and me looking at them going, this is a job. Like you can get paid to do this and and thinking, all right, this is what I'm going for, you know, but you don't really see it on the day today. So for these guys to see, you know, Tyler Harvey working out in the middle of school holidays for them to look and see, wow, that's, that's Tyler Harvey, you know, it's, it's, I think it's motivating. I think it's inspiring. And I think the Hawks do a good job of, of not trying to shelter that from all the kids. Like, you know, we're front and center. They're great. They're accommodating. So um, it's, it's really, really cool. I love it, Daniel. That's what I actually really like about the Hawks. You made such a good point, not only about their community uh, outreach uh, and how well integrated they are in a, in the community, being a regional area as well, I think is super important. But uh, you guys play, well, you guys train on the exact same courts that anyone from domestic, like you said, mini hawks, walking basketball, they use the exact same court. Like it just makes things so much more like realistic and achievable. Like when you can see your idols playing on the same court that you play. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. And just a side note, Lockie, before you jump into more important questions, I'm so interested to know, walking basketball is something I really hope takes off here on the Central Coast because we actually have quite a large aging population down here. How did you recruit from one to two players initially to get like 16, 17 now? That's really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. To, to be honest with you, just enter the secret. The secret isn't actually in the walking basketball. It's in the the snacks and the coffee and the tea that you offer afterwards. It's, it's the quality of the post-session uh, meals. So... Um, yeah, but no, in all seriousness, it's, it's look, in that, in that community, um, so I have an older dad. I grew up with a dad that was born in 1947. He's 76 this year. So I, I really do have a, a deep appreciation for that age group and that demographic who have done so much for us. But I, I guess in my opinion, um, maybe get left behind a little bit. And I think it's amazing to focus on the youth. But I think uh, we just can't forget about all those people, especially like, you know, we talk about basketball. These people paved the way, you know, they, they built the snake pit. They're, they're there. So to have so many of those guys and girls, a lot of females that had played basketball for years come back and play is, is so rewarding to see. But it's, you know, it's really about that for them. Like they get together with their old team that they played with 40 years ago. You have people that have never played basketball before. People that come from have played walking soccer, have played walking netball. Um, and it's a really, it's a word of mouth thing. Like these groups, they go for walks, they go for coffee. If, you know, someone says, Hey, walking basketball was great. We had a lot of fun. You know, you get new people every single week. So it's, uh, yeah, it grows quickly if, you know, if everyone's enjoying it. So I've, I've been absolutely stoked with the outcome. And when Freddie brings the Monte Carlos. That's right. Oh, it's, it's everything. It's the scones. It's the Anzac Bickies, you know, and we're, we're coffee and tea next season. Your your primary function down in in Wollongong is to <laughs> is to play play for the Hawks NBL one team, and you're actually playing in a team. You mentioned all those connections and you had, and some of those guys are playing on the team with you. Uh, you mentioned Timmy Conrad and and Waxy. 
how, how does playing alongside those guys assist in your development as you look to progress to the next level? Oh, it's, it's massive. Like, um, not often do you get the chance to, you know, be side by side a couple of times a week with guys that have played hundreds of NBL games um, and have been under great coaches. They've played with great point guards. Like, um, there's been numerous conversations where I've gone up to either one of those and said, hey, like, who was the best point guard you've played with? What did he do? How did he do it? How did he talk to his teammates? If he had to, if he had to address a point, how did he do it without making someone feel bad or without bringing them down? What, like, what you know, methods and tactics and whatever else? And to get legitimate responses for you know, Waxy that have played with Damian Martin, Timmy that's played with Reese Martin, like you know, these guys with such experience has been um, has been awesome. And they've been, you know, I can't thank them enough for letting me be me and still letting me uh, lead and have a voice in the group. You know, with so much experience with so many NBL guys, um, I think it would be easy for them to be, not to get, not necessarily get their nose out of joint, but for them to just, you know, think, you know, we I've played X amount of NBL games. This guy has never played an NBL game. But I think, you know, they've seen from my first day of training uh, to now that, you know, I like to have a voice. Um, I think I've been a leader since I was young and uh, and I really want, what's best for the team. And I think once everyone realizes that it's very easy to sort of get behind and, and follow suit. As you know, a point guard, you, you need to have a voice and be a leader. You know, you're out there direct directing traffic in the, in the offense. It shows in your play, you actually, you know, you're leading the league in assists at the moment. Um, is that the way you like to play as a facilitator first? Yeah, I think, uh, I think my first year in Mackay, I sort of, you know, I had a, had a good sit down with Joel about halfway through the season. And we sort of said like, all right, if this is the goal, what player are you going to be? How are you going to get there? Because being an expert generalist, you know, six foot isn't the best way to achieve um, the goals that I had set out. You know, at, at the next level, it's it's all about specifics. What, what role can you fill? And uh, for me, it was very simple. Uh, it was to be an absolute pest on defense, to be a leader, to communicate, uh, and to get the ball to the best players where they want it, when they want it, so they can score. You know, and take my opportunities when they come and shoot the ball, you know, when I'm open and, and, and make those sort of reads. So, um, yeah, I think it's been a bit of a process. Uh, I watch a lot of film. I think I pride myself on being very prepared. I, um, I'm often sending sending clips to teammates or talking to them pregame about their, their matchups or, um, you know, lots of different little things like that. And, and I think, you know, and again, like you said, it all comes with being a point guard, being a leader. Like you, I think that's our job. That's, that's my job. So, um, yeah, getting assists is good. I, you know, I can make a great pass, but if my teammates weren't such good shooters, I wouldn't get an assist. So having Tim, Timmy Conrad on one wing and Harry Morris on the other, Davo running down the lane, Phil, Brent, I could name my whole team. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it, it makes my life easy. Yeah, you certainly uh, spoiled for choice with options as well uh, yeah. in that team. <laughs> and, um, and the team, you may have been... Good start, dipped a bit, and now you're sitting at nine and nine, and you got that big game against Newcastle coming up. Um, how how do you approach this part of the season, knowing you're just outside finals, and all you can do from here on out is win and hope the chips fall your way? For sure. Um, look, it's it's frustrating um, where we're at, and you know, you look back at close games, we dropped hills by you know contested step back essentially a buzzer beater. Um, we dropped a couple other games by a couple of points. The reality of it was we were down seven players, seven of our top 10. So, you know, we went to Aubrey with literally seven. 
we went to Norths with, uh, I think, maybe six or seven NBL1 guys in the youth league who had just played to, you know, fill in. So there was a stretch of five or six games where we were, we were actually very competitive considering, you know, what we had on the floor. But, you know, I think you have to look at that and go, okay, well, there's a bunch of players, including myself, who got a lot of experience they wouldn't have got otherwise, you know, if we had a full roster. Um, and you can only hope that when when their number gets called because of those experiences, they're prepared for it. That, that little dip was really frustrating. We sort of come into form as of late, but it's it's tough. Like the consistency hasn't been there because, you know, people have been injured, people have been out, people have, you know, had all sorts of different situations that hasn't allowed us to really catch a rhythm. Um, as far as how we approach the next three games, I mean, you, you there's, there's only one way to approach it, which is one possession at a time, one game at a time. Like we can't control what happens to, to the teams, you know, between us and that eight spot. Um, the only thing we can do is go out there and, and do our absolute best to win every game by as much as we can and put ourselves in the best position possible. That's it. Like the chips will fall how they fall and everyone will wake up and, and you know, be breathing and be okay the next day, even if we don't make finals. So it's, um, you know, we're hoping we're doing everything possible um, but we've, we've got a mature group and, and, um, really, honestly, I, I really want to enjoy these last three games. Cause you never know, like this could be the last three games you play with these, this set of nine, 10, you know, 12, 15 guys that you train with. That could be it. Three games for the rest of your life with these people. So yes, we obviously want to win. That's the priority. But, um, I think trying to be present and, and just enjoy the fact and, and try to realize the fact that this is it sort of makes the moment, uh, you know, uh, a lot better. It's interesting you mentioned that it could be the last games you played with this particular group because um, a few years ago, I was lucky enough to be sitting in with Sutherland before a finals game and uh, BJ Carter said exactly the same thing. He came in and said, you know, next year, even if one guy leaves and replace him with someone else, it's still a different vibe. So if you like this group, get out there and win because you want to keep the group together. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, you couldn't, couldn't say any better. And I think that probably goes for more than just hoops. Like you never know when it'll be your last time um, doing something. It sounds probably a little morbid, but it, it probably uh, it just, it just locks you in a little bit more and um, makes you appreciate where you have that little bit more, I think. Because coming from up north, did you know many of the other people on your team before you got here? No. So actually, you know what? Like that reminded me of something that I didn't mention about the whole connection with coming down here was um, Big Joe, who's the manager for the Hawks. They came up for the Blitz, this past Blitz. He had reached out to me because he was the CEO of Darn Basketball when I was in there every morning, 6 a.m., 6 a.m., 6 a.m., 6 a.m. So he saw me. We had a great relationship. He was always being fantastic to me. When he came up, he, you know, he had reached out. We're coming up, whatever else. So I was sort of there team liaison for the Hawks when they were up there. So pre-game in the locker room, walk them out to the court. Um, during the game, I'm sitting sort of right behind their bench. Post-game, walk them back. And they were amazing to me. Like for someone who, they all knew who I was. Like I played against Sam in NBL One North, Lockie Dent. I, I, had, I knew a bunch of these guys. They knew that I played and there was a respect there. But really for someone who was relatively unknown, they were amazing. They had me in their pregame huddles. Um, I was. I remember one time we're in the huddle. I'm looking around. There's no coaches. It's all of them about to go on the court and me in my NBL Blitz T-shirt, you know. Um, and that goes for the for the imports too. Like um, J. Rob, Tyler, George King at the time. Like they were all very accommodating. And 
I remember leaving that week thinking, this is a this is an amazing group of people, just of humans. Like some people that regardless if I was playing or not, I would want to be around them. Um, so when the connection came with basketball Illawarra and I knew the Hawks were down here, I just remembered that. Remember how welcoming all of them were, including the coaching staff, including Jacob, and thought, this is great. You know, so so you know, I came down and, and that was all part of it. So by the time I got down here, I remember walking into the pit one time and Tyler was walking out and he had to sort of double take, like, you actually came down? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I actually came down. Like, I told you I was going to come. And he was like, no, I believed it. I believed it. And uh, and that's been fantastic. Like, you know, they've been phenomenal to me since. And um, yeah, very appreciative of the way they made me feel up there and, and how accommodating they've been since I've been, since I've been down here. It's just interesting because you spoke earlier about how the Salties are now a pathway and representation for the young kids in Darwin. And when you were ready to leave Mackay, Illawarra was one team that were like, yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, come down and play for us. And now you've just kind of placed yourself in the perfect position to put yourself in that, in that pathway to an NBL team with the Hawks. Uh, was that part of your decision to come down or was that serendipitous? I'd be lying if I said it, it, you know, I hadn't thought of it, um, that, you know, there, there's obviously an NBL team here. But truthfully, I, I didn't didn't put too much attention on it or pay too much mind to it because I think I think it's dangerous to to do that. And then, especially if you wake up every morning thinking like, all right, I'm just here to, you know, I'm just here to try and make the NBL, try and make the NBL, try and make the NBL, which sort of by default, by saying that, you're essentially saying everything until I make the NBL isn't good enough. Or is, or is a negative experience. Um, so I think by default saying, look, this would be fantastic, but right now I'm just going to focus game to game because I know if I if I do my job and I play well and we do well as a team, I put myself in the best best position possible um, to, you know, to get a look at even training with them or any other team around the country. So, um, you know, there, it was definitely there, but I wouldn't say it was a, um, a hard focus by any means. How close are you to you know getting in there with with the Hawks NBL? Is there anything official going on yet? Have there been discussions? Yeah, look, um, nothing official. Uh, nothing official. They've been great. Like you know, from Jacob, Sean, Paul, and Lockie in particular. Like they're around. They're, the Sean and Paul are coaching our youth league team, which you know we train on on similar nights. Lockie's around all the time, and, and so is Jacob. And you know they're at our games. They're courtside, and so often I'll talk to them post-game, hey, you know, what did you think? Uh, you know, how can I do better? Let me get some feedback. Or they'll come and, and just offer their advice uh, without me asking, which I always, always appreciate. I think I think for me, I, I love to learn. I love to learn. And knowing that there's coaches at that level here, it's a no-brainer that I want to be around them. As far as if there's anything official going on, not not particularly, um, not, not at all, really. Um, I'm at peace that if they think that I can bring anything positive to the team and help the organization in any way, they will reach that conclusion and, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. At the moment, I'm, I'm glad learning as much as I can from them um, in the interactions that, that I'm having and, you know, being around the NBL guys and just talking to them, you learn so much as well. You know, having having Dan as my roommate has been amazing. You know, this will be his sixth year as a Hawk. He's had, you know, his own absolute journey through injuries and whatever else. So being able to just sit and, and chat has been, you know, amazing. Like, I, I honestly, I couldn't couldn't have scripted it any better. Have you learned anything from uh, your time at the Hawks, whether it's with NBL One or having contact with the NBL coaches about your game that you didn't know about yourself? 
I think the biggest thing about uh, this year with NBL one and you know, it really speaks to that coaching staff between Nash and Ben is uh, they've really given me the confidence to fail and, and play through it. So I think, um, you know, in, in competitive situations and whatever else, sometimes, you know, your leash is a bit shorter and, you know, as a rookie and a sophomore in Mackay, you know, I didn't have a very long leash. It was just the reality of it. And, and I learned a lot and you had to be really prepared. But I think here, having the ability to go out, you know, I, I might be leading the league in assists. I'm sure I'm up there in turnovers as well. Like, but having, having the ability to go out and try and make a play, even if it doesn't come off, knowing that your coaches and your entire team backs you to go and make another play the next possession gives you all the confidence in the world. So now I'm not hesitating. Oh, should I, should I not? Should I, should I not? No, I'm going to. I'm going to. Because I know even if I don't make the play or if I, if I make a mistake – no one's on me about, hey, you know, you shouldn't take that shot or, you know, what are you doing? It's, uh, it's all right. Next play. Next play. We trust you. You know, we trust you. And I had a conversation, had this conversation with Ben after our game against Southern. You know, I was, I was reasonably upset with myself. And I, and I said to him, look, I just feel like I haven't been good in the back end of games this season. And, and he sat me down. And he said, listen, like, we trust you no matter what. It, it, it doesn't matter. Like, we've chosen you to be our leader and our point guard. And, uh, you know, we're going to live with your decisions. And just hearing that almost takes a weight off your shoulders. You think, okay, now I am now I don't have that added extra pressure of, oh, if I make a mistake, I'm going to get subbed out or I'm going to get absolutely yelled at. It's, uh, it's a matter of, okay, just play calm, look at your options and try and make the best decision possible. And uh, that's probably been the biggest thing about this whole season for me. And super grateful for it. Again, it's one of those things that um, – if you, if you would have told me that a year ago, two years ago, that that's the situation I'd be in, um, you know, I, I don't know if I'd believe you. So it's it's been fantastic. You mentioned, we'll, cir- we'll circle back, we'll circle of life this. You mentioned <laughs> earlier that you, when you were a kid, it was your job to be the tour guide <clears throat> at the family farm. Now, there's a lot of stories out there about kids at the family farm, you know, juggling sports. But I don't think any have quite the story you do because your father is one of the world's foremost experts on crocodiles and your family farm is Crocodile Zoo. What's it like growing up in that environment and juggling basketball at the same time? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because when you grow up with something, you, you tend to take it for granted. And it's not until you get a little bit older and you look back or you talk to other people and you realize that was pretty unique. That was a, that was a pretty cool experience. Um, so yeah, so just to expand on that. So we, my dad started a crocodile. It was a research, it was a research facility originally. He's a hardcore scientist through and through. So it was a research facility originally and then expanded into a crocodile farm uh, and a zoo. So at any one time we've had 10,000, 12,000 crocs uh, as well as lions, tigers, monkeys, dingoes, wombats, et cetera, et cetera. So my mom is also a zoologist. She is, she's Colombian. She's fully Colombian. Dad's fully Australian. Um, she, yeah, she was a zoologist running a crop farm in Colombia. You know, dad was doing his stuff. They eventually met and ran the park. Me and me growing up, that was, that was my backyard. You know, school bus used to drop me there. And yeah, like by the age of 12, 13, under the guidance of some really amazing tour guides, I was running the tours. People were coming in, paying their money, and it was me talking about, you know, the 24 different species of crocodile and their jaw pressure and what they eat, what they don't, where you can swim, the differences between them and alligators. And, um, you know, and that afforded me a lot of awesome experiences as far as travel as well. Um, 
dad dad's the chairman of the crocodile specialist group which is 700 members from 70 or 80 different countries and every two years they meet in a different country so we would always go with him to these different countries and you'd always meet different people and talk and learn um and so looking back on that i I think that was probably one of the things that shaped me as a person and gave me a lot of perspective especially traveling to you know china Indonesia, um, some of these countries, you know, third world countries that deal with, you know, are actually dealing with poverty and, and you know, actual suffering and, and a harsh way of life, unlike, you know, uh, what it's like here. So, yeah, all, all of it combined was was fantastic. Um, and the crocodile side of things, you know, it's just, it was so much fun. It was so much fun growing up. Like uh, I learned to drive at the age of 13, 12, 13 in a truck on a crocodile farm. I've been going in helicopters since I was two or three, um, you know, uh, unbeknownst to my mom, you know, dad would sort of you know, put me in a helicopter and come on, we're going to the swamps, you know. I think by the age of 12, I was getting dropped in with teams to, you know, sort of trek through mud and water to get crocodile eggs. Uh, so just, yeah, really cool experiences. And uh, yeah, it's funny. It, it's funny thinking about how anxious and, and, you know, nervous you can get before a basketball game and then comparing it to some of the things you've done and the experiences you've had, and it doesn't quite add up. And I think that's just part of that, that primitive brain that, you know, you can get so worked up before a sports event. Um, but yeah, look, it, it was, it was an amazing experience growing up. And you talk about the, the anxiety before a basketball game, I guess it uh, probably doesn't measure up to being dropped in the crock pit with your basketball. Uh <clears throat> What's the story there? Because I heard about this. Uh, you had an interview with um, ABC Radio and you talked about being in the crock pit playing basketball. Yeah, absolutely. There's a photo floating around there. Mackay Basketball posted it at one point. I think it's somewhere on my Instagram of, uh, of me with a hat on, dribbling dribbling a ball surrounded by crocs. And uh, it's definitely not Photoshopped. It's a, it's a real photo. And what, what actually happened, the story behind that was uh, that pit had about 400 crocodiles that were about, no, probably 1.5 to 2 meters, maybe 2.5 meters, you know, three to four, five years old, and about 400 crocs in there. And they had drained the pond. They were cleaning it out. I think they were refilling it. As they were draining it, I was there and I was on my way to practice. And I was about to leave. And dad, as he does, seizes every opportunity and said, hey, why don't you just jump in there with your ball? I think it'd be a good photo. And I was like, dad, like, Let's not get ridiculous here. Like, come on. There's, there's 400 crocs there. Like, if I drop the ball, it's going in the water. I've got to get to training. Like, nah. Like, no, thanks. And uh, if this is just anyone that knows my father knows, he's very sort of nonchalant. Like, what are you talking about? Just get in there. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Like, not a big of a deal. Like, says the guy that's, you know, got a massive scar on his calf from being bitten by a croc. And uh, yeah, so he sort of threw me in there and tried to position. He said, look, I want you to get right down there sort of making my way down there and, and trying to wiggle in between these crocs that are just eyeing me off. And, um, and yeah, so I'm down there just dribbling. Like I've never been so anxious dribbling in my entire life, knowing that if I lose the ball, it's, you know, it's gone. Um, yeah. And then, so that photo got snapped up and I don't know. Some people want to be quick. I, I had to be, <laughs> I didn't have a choice. You mentioned your mum's Colombian. Um, have you, Oh, first, are you eligible to play for Columbia and have you thought about it? Yeah, it's actually a great question. Um, 
So yes, is the answer to both. Um, I've got my Colombian passport and at the end of last season in Mackay, I was speaking to a team and uh, was really torn between going there and going back home and playing sort of the season in the Premier League. And I just decided at that point in my career, uh, I really wanted to have just a really solid off-season at home, everything at my disposal, complete access to the gym, um, the weight room. You know, I was I was very comfortable, comfortable in the sense of I had everything and I, I knew I could just work my tail off and get ready for next NBL one season. So I put that on hold, but that's... that's um, yeah, a, a very much a, a real possibility in saying that I would I would love to do and be interested in. Um, and, you know, even even if the opportunity came to be involved in any sort of national team with the Colombian national team, that, that'd be great. I'm fluent in Spanish. Um, I, I say I'm fluent. I'm sure I'd go there and have to learn, you know, uh, a bunch of new words and, and the slang. But, um, yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, don't be surprised if... <laughs> Next time we chat, I've shot over there for a, a quick three-month season or whatever it may be, um, which would be really cool. Again, it's one of those things that the opportunity is there. Um, I love to travel. I love to explore new things. And I know that that window of my life, you know, it closes. Um, and I don't want to get to the end of that and go, oh, wow, I, I should have traveled more with my ability to play basketball and be a local in Columbia and whatever else. So, yeah, I think that'll that'll definitely happen in the coming years. And do you still have family in Colombia? Uh, yeah, I do. So I've got my grandparents there, um, cousins, uncles, aunties. Yeah, heaps of people over there. So, you know, it's, yeah, that's family over there. And you mentioned it's a three-month season over there. Is that right? And what time of year does it run? Yeah, it's a it's sort of a funky season is my understanding. Um, they play really short seasons, I think. I don't think that like it's the top league over there. I don't think it's got a, a ton of money and a ton of sponsorship. So they sort of cram it, cram it pretty quickly. Um, the last time I spoke to the coach, they were running, they ran the back end of September for about two to three months. I think they'd finished sort of right before Christmas, sort of that time frame. but they run a couple of those, you know, and sometimes even shorter throughout the year. So um yeah, I think that'd be cool as to get over there, play a couple months, you know, be immersed in the culture, um, and then you know come back and or even play somewhere else as well. Especially if you have a passport, then you can be considered as a local rather than exactly yeah forcing or not forcing, but putting a team under pressure who might not have a lot of financial resources to have you as an import. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Do you want to give any of your MBO one teammates a shout out while we've got you here on the pod? <laughs> Oh man, I could give them all a shout out. Um, but yeah, we'll touch on Phil. Phil's my 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 dog, um, and uh, he, you know, he's an avid listener of the East Got Game podcast. He's he's you know he's telling me every time we're at practice, man, they said this, man, they picked us for this, you know, blah blah, whatever it may be. Um, so definitely a big shout out to to Big Phil. You know, he he's got a bright future too. Like Phil, Phil's so young, um, he's still he's still figuring it out. And I know it's going to be one of those things once it clicks. He, he's he's got a legit career in it you know what i mean he can go as far as he wants to take it um and everyone's been great my first couple months yeah harry morris was you know he was with me every day we we're working out together he made me feel so you know good and like i said i could i could talk about all my teammates like davo you know for an nbl guy uh, guard to trust me um to lead alongside him uh, has been great for me um, and great for our team. So that's been fantastic. Um, and then, yeah, the coaches, I can't say enough about Nash and Ben, like 
they've just been fantastic to me um, off the court, on the court, both of it. And uh, I will give a, a special shout out actually to um, Kev White. Kev White works in our uh, at Basketball Illawarra. And I ended up actually living with him, Rach and the kids for about a month. And he, he's phenomenal, man. Like he, uh, he's, you know, he's just like, he was like a big brother figure. Like anything I need to talk about, whether it was watching film, basketball, non-basketball, like just sound advice, um, really, you know, going into bat for me um, when it came to, when it came to anything in regards to our team. And uh, he's been a great sounding board. And that's, and that's, I think one of the, one of the draws for me about this place is those guys are littered everywhere. Like between, you know, just in our office, Kev, Ben, Ozzy, um, it has just been fantastic. Like having all these people that have played at a high level that you can go and talk to about legitimate things. And they understand from a player's perspective that like, okay, yeah, you do need to get onto the court because you do need to shoot. Oh, okay. You need access at this time. Cool. Don't worry about it. We got you like, you know, helping where you can. So um, really a shout out to the whole, whole organization because they've been, they've been phenomenal to me. So I can't say enough about them. Awesome. Well, Freddie, you sound like certainly a talent on the rise and especially some of your teammates that you mentioned in Phil and Harry and Lockie and I are also a big fan and Noel Pagotto as well. I hope oh, that... Padge. Yeah. He's yeah. Like, let me, yeah. Listen, Padge has got it. Like, Padge has got it. Uh, he's going to college. You know, I'm sure he didn't have to go to college. He probably, got, probably could have gone straight into the NBL system. Um, but, you know, he's going to go have a great time over there. He's going to go ball out. And then, you know, whenever he's ready, any NBL team would be lucky to have someone like him. Yeah, and I really hope that you guys uh, can still stick together for another season because um, you've definitely shown shown some promise. Like you said, you're all pretty, really young. You're all at that next phase of your career where you're on the edge of making some NBL squads and uh, you're certainly in the best position yourself to be doing that in the future. So hopefully you guys will stick around and um, really cement a strong Illawarra men's team uh, in the next couple of years. But uh, in the meantime, uh, I did tip you guys to win the whole thing. Uh, so <laughs> in the next three games, uh, if you can, hey, get me a three from three. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll go. We'll do everything in our power to go three from three. Hopefully the chips fall our way. And I'm telling you right now, like, we are that team that you just don't want to see. Because, because if we play the right way, and we've talked about it all season, and maybe it sounds a bit rich sitting in, you know, nine and nine, but when we put it together, I truly believe we're the best team in the comp. And, and you know, not in an arrogant way, but you just look at our makeup of the team and the reality of our season. Unfortunately, it hasn't been our season, but yeah, don't let us get to eighth. Don't let us get in eighth. Well, keep grinding for the rest of the season. And thank you so much for joining us on Scott Game. It's really great to have you and uh, know that your teammates support the podcast. Uh, Lockie, Jacinta, you guys have been phenomenal. I love the podcast. I love the idea of it. Um, I was talking to someone today about podcasts and we were talking that, um, you know, a stat came out that 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode 10. And of that, you know, percentage of the left 90% don't make it past episode 20 so you guys are I don't know five episodes off so <laughs> keep going I hope nothing catastrophic happens before episode 21 but um, I love it I think it's awesome for the league I think the NBL one east needs this sort of stuff and they need to promote the hell out of it coming from the north like this league's obviously on the rise but this is the sort of stuff that goes a long way for the entire league so you know it's only a matter of time before this thing blows up so Keep doing it. Love it. Thanks, Eves Freddie. Eves Freddie. Beautiful. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of eScott Games. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe and share with your friends. Until next time, don't sleep on the yeast.